You're listening to Grace Saves All, the podcast which exists at the spiritual intersection of Christianity and universal salvation. In this podcast, we will be exploring an ancient and modern approach to Christianity, which affirms both that grace saves alone and that grace goes to all. And now, here is David Artman, author of Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. Nick Hughes is a former missionary who, alongside his wife and kids, served in Central Africa and France over a period of three years before returning to the United States. Before their time overseas, Nick was a CPA, his wife an RN, each serving in various capacities for nonprofits and ministries across the globe. Nick and his family are currently living in Wichita, Kansas, enjoying reconnecting with family and resettling in the U.S. Nick is here with us today to share his spiritual journey, beginning with growing up in conservative evangelicalism, then to the mission field, and then how all of this led to his coming to embrace Christian universalism and what this means ultimately for Christian mission. Welcome, Nick, to the Grace Saves All podcast. Thanks, David. Excited to be here and and honored to be a part of what you're doing. Well, uh, that's I can tell from the uh, introduction that we've got quite a story here. And when we were visiting um, uh, kind of before the podcast, you said that you kind of wanted to move sort of quickly through the beginning so we can get to when it gets really exciting on the mission <laughs> field and all the things that happened to you there. So let's start out with kind of a flyover of your early <clears throat> uh, spiritual experiences in life. Sure. Yeah. It, uh, you know, everybody's story uh, has some, some exciting points, some pretty mundane and, and uh, monotonous points. But as you uh, said in your introduction, David, I, I grew up in a kind of an evangelical reality church, uh, Southern Baptist specifically. And, uh, you know, we were one of those families that was in, in church anytime the door was open, right? Sunday mornings, mm-hmm. Sunday nights, Wednesdays, you name it. Uh, my dad was a a deacon and uh, director of the Sunday school uh, program at a, a church in St. Louis, Missouri, that we attended for years. And so I was a typical uh, little boy, just uh, rambunctious as all get out. You know, my twin brother and I, we we thought it, uh, we owned the church, right? We'd be running up and down the hallways all matter of hours of the day and, you know, down in the mess hall, stealing donuts after our our max two uh, was out. We'd, we'd find ways to get in there and sneak some more. And so it was a really, just a really fun childhood. Honestly, you know, I, I didn't think too much about what this whole church thing was about. Um, you know, of course we went to Sunday school regularly. We had RAs, Royal Ambassadors, you know, for those of your listeners that are in the Baptist church, it's kind of the, it's kind of the Baptist version of Boy Scouts. Um, so we, we loved it, you know, and I, I want to say it wasn't until probably the teen years um, to where I really started thinking about my life uh, and just where it was headed. You know, I, we had a great youth pastor. Uh, We transitioned to a mission church in St. Charles, Missouri in a really rough neighborhood. And so all of a sudden my twin brother and I, we went from being kind of a majority, just, you know, Caucasian uh, middle-class middle to upper-class family, uh, just really normal church experiences. We went from that to being a minority. I mean, most of our peers at the, at the mission church at that point became kids that 
were coming from broken families, um, really broken, like you wouldn't believe. Um, and so we we got exposed to a whole new world at that point, and our our paradigm was was rocked in a good way. And we had a great youth pastor, great youth leadership team, and um, I began to feel you know some some guilt, I think, from the Holy Spirit about the life that I was living. You know, as a teenage boy, it's all about you, right? It's all about <laughs> mm-hmm. what can I, what kind of fun and, and trouble can I get into and um, get away with? And uh, life's just, you know, it's it's for you. Um, and so, had a typical youth camp experience. Um, for those of your listeners that again grew up in an evangelical background, that was a pretty typical thing. Uh, most summers, the the youth leadership would ship the kids off to youth camp and lots of fun, lots of games, activities. And then of course, most nights they'd have a fiery, uh, passionate preacher that would try to get you out of hell, right? Or convict you of your sin and um, really just, you know, in a positive light, try to bring you to the new life that uh, the Lord had. Mm -hmm. Now, did you have a sense uh, when you were uh, in these meetings that that you needed to maybe recommit your life or maybe you weren't saved or or was it you were wondering, well, am I saved or not? Or did you have sort of a conviction of like, well, I, I'm not really doubting my salvation, but I am thinking I need to um, be more serious about my faith? Sure. Yeah, that's a great question. No, you know, I think there was a season, there was a, there, there was a f- several month period leading up to that that one summer, that one youth camp in which I got saved, where, I, you know, I tried to tell myself that I was right, that I was in, that I was good, that um, God had me. But, you know, through the teachings that we went through, through the the study of the word that we went through it, and, and I think the conviction of the Holy Spirit, it was clear that I was not in the right place. You know, I, I was guilty, right? I had sinned. I, I had that sin nature. Even just one sin, I knew I was guilty before the Lord. And so, um, yeah, I think that that kind of crescendoed into this climax to where one night, I think it was the first night of youth camp, um, African-American, real fiery, I think Southern Baptist preacher was was going at it, kind of just using really strong language. And he, I, if I remember correctly, like, I don't even think he was really focusing in on hell, right? I mean, you hear a lot of people's stories and, and folks you brought on the podcast, kind of this religious trauma reality where they felt maybe yeah. they were scared into the kingdom. Um, but for me, that was not the case uh, entirely. I felt I felt that the Lord was really drawing me. And I felt that, um, you know, that that I needed him, you know. I had a friend, a friend who grew up in the Southern Baptist Church, and he said that his experience was, throughout the year, he pretty much felt like he was going to heaven. But then in the summer, they would bring in an evangelist, and, <laughs> and then he was sure he was going to hell. And yes. then he would have to recommit his life. And then it was just kind of this cycle, you know. He was pretty yeah. sure, pretty sure most of the time. But then they would send in an evangelist, and the evangelist would scare him really bad, and he'd have to recommit his life because he didn't know if he was going to heaven or not. Right, right. He'd talk him out of it. Yeah. And so then, then the evangelist would, uh, he'd feel like he got, you know, he he did his job, right? He uh, <laughs> maybe uh, talked some people out of it and then got to save, get, get him back saved again. Yeah. You know, our youth pastor, he, 
He actually did take us to a hell house uh, one time. Do you know what those are, David? Have you guys heard of those? Well, before? I haven't. I haven't been to one, but I've heard. Uh, I've heard people talking about them. Yeah, yeah. It's you know, it's basically a haunted house on crack, and it's got kind of this kind of this baseline of um, good intentions, right? They they want to kind of expose your sin or, or, or show you that you're, you're not measuring up right. And that God's wrath can be pretty intense. Um, let's just be real. They're trying to scare you into salvation, right. Into making a choice. And so I'll never forget, you know, one night we went to one of those and we went through all of the first several steps of the hell house. And at the end of it, down in the basement, right. I think they call it the dungeon. There's this big, projector screen and they're showing a little clip of a, a teenage girl and her friends, you know, they're out driving around drunk and partying and all of a sudden they get into a car accident. And really it was pretty traumatic uh, imagery that, you know, was coming across, across the screen there. And then, you know, the car's like on fire and they actually, they actually burned real hair in the background. So you get this like aroma of burning hair, you know, and you start, all of a sudden there's this transition scene where she's ushered in into hell and there's all this screaming and moaning and, you know, like wailing and flames in the background. And then of course somebody comes out, for, you know, cut scene and somebody comes out in front and starts, you know, sharing the gospel with you. And for whatever reason, I, as intense as that was, I, I just decided like, nah, that's not really for me. I'm not ready to make, um, that the decision, you know, at this point. And I remember hearing one of your podcasts, you know, your experience as a, as a youth, it seemed like, you know, the folks that you were around in, in Southwest Missouri, they kind of led with that foot, right. As far yeah, as I grew up, actually, I grew up, I, I live in um, Northern Arkansas right now, but I grew right. up in, I grew up in the Metroplex, the Dallas Fort Worth Metroplex in Irving, oh, Texas. Okay. And okay. that was, uh, yeah, I, I didn't go, I wasn't a church kid. But I was around a lot of kids that were in evangelical churches, and it was a big thing about where whether you were saved or not. And yeah, so there was a that was a that was a real big real kind of question in my in in my day. Mm, yeah, yeah, and and so for me, back to that experience of youth camp, you know, I made that decision. I felt some freedom, and and like I'd made the right choice, you know, to say yes to Jesus, and that His blood covered me, and and I was declared righteous and new life, and and all of that. And so flash forward several months, I remember getting back from youth camp. And during the rest of that summer, I actually came upon Voice of the Martyrs, uh, Book of Martyrs. Uh, it was kind of a collaborative project with them and DC Talk. And I really feel like God just put a level of intrigue and, and excitement and openness to that that um, was unique. I, I really resonated with a lot of the stories of... I think of, I remember those books. They, they, they were yeah. interesting looking books. They were on... Looked like weathered kind of paper, yeah. Yep. And they had then they had all these stories in there about people who had, you know, done extraordinary things uh, yes. for Christ, and sometimes they uh, lost their lives or faced persecution. And uh, reading those stories, you know, it's, it's like, well, am well, what what am I doing? <laughs> you can you could <laughs> yeah. sort of have that feeling. Yeah, it kind of, it kind of, uh, it's a trump, trump card in a way, or just it, 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 like you said, it really convicts you and kind of gets you to re-examine things. And so, I really ran with that for a while. Um, like any 
teenage boy when I hit high school and in the college years, you know, a lot of things started crashing down as far as I, I believe that my faith was shallow. Um, and as I thought about why the last couple of days as I was pre- getting ready uh, for our call, I think a lot of that had to do with just my relationship with my father. I, um, we weren't very close uh, necessarily. He's a great dad, loved us, you know, worked hard, um, showed a lot of love in a lot of different ways. But I, you know, there's a gap uh, as far as like building confidence in, in, in my twin and I and, and kind of that identity. Um, and so I was really unsure and really um, wishy-washy in the faith after that. And, and flash forward a few years when I went to a conservative uh, Southern Baptist college in Southwest Missouri, I ironically, the further in I got, uh, the further away from the Lord um, that I, that I became. Um, And so I think that my faith was really being tested at that point, unlike any time prior. And so post college, I entered into a season of agnosticism. There was just so much, I think there's so much, bitterness and hurt and anger between uh, unspoken between my dad and I and my twin and I that I really hadn't realized had boiled beneath the surface. And then, you know, well, I started seems having, if I can just, yeah, yeah. That, that seems like kind of what happens in, in settings where there's a very, very, uh, like maybe confident assertion doctrinally, scripturally about what things are about, that there's not a lot of space then for questioning or right. processing doubts. And so there isn't, since there isn't that space, there just isn't any way to process it. And that kind of can, you're, you're sort of either in or out and there's, it's hard to have a conversations in that middle ground. Yeah. And my wife and I were talking about that last night, actually. She, I think I've shared with you, but she's largely deconstructed, if you will, um, significant portions of her faith, you know, foundational things that she's still kind of trying to, uh, rebuild. And and one of the things that we mentioned last night that we talked about last night is there's almost this, we felt growing up as teenagers, we felt some liberty to, to not be okay, to ask questions, to wrestle, but it was almost, it, it almost could, it couldn't go too far, right? Like our mm-hmm. leadership and our youth leaders, our parents, like, yeah, yeah, it's good to wrestle. It's good to ask questions, but you got to watch out for that slippery slope, right? Or you got to make sure to not want to scratch the itching ear too much, you know? And it was almost like a somewhat of a pseudo, a pseudo uh, f- free, you know, space by which you could ask a lot of questions. I'm doing air quotes here, but in reality, there was, all, there always seemed to be a limit. Um, but, you know, as I moved into my agnostic years and, and some of the root of that were the classic questions like, you know, why would God allow suffering and evil in the world as we see it? Why, how, how could he um, let uh, man's free volition, you know, kind of get us to this point? And some of those classic kind of questions, even comparing different world religions, you know, mm-hmm. I think at the root of all that was, um, kind of a misunderstanding and, and a lack of wanting to see God active in the world, as well as just my personal pain and hurt. You know, I couldn't trust God because I, I had a hard time trusting my 
some of the close folks in my family, right? My dad and my brother. And so in that season, though, in agnosticism, a gentleman from the church, a guy from the church really took me under his wing. And um, just he was a guy that I felt like I could say anything to. And I I said, I mean, I let him have it as far as, you know, some of these uh, really, quote unquote, well thought out objections to the faith. Right. And God used that. God used that season of wrestling and doubting and um, just not being okay with what I had been taught. Now, during during this period, you know, there's usually when people start like you start questioning, they start thinking, well, there's different. Well, maybe there's different ways we can think about the hell situation and there's eternal conscious torment and then there's the annihilationism or conditional immortality mm-hmm. and then uh, there's a universal restoration and did those were those three possibilities like on your radar screen then did you start to think to start thinking about that kind of thing great question yeah so i i honestly not a lot i you'll on the outline that I sent you, you'll notice there was a there was a time after I came back to the Lord and I had really started strengthening my faith. I was reading David Platt's work, John Piper's work, um, and really just getting plugged into church and service. There was a time where I came across 2 Peter 3 9. You know, God is not slow, as some understand slowness, but is patient with all, wanting none to perish. And that verse God really used. Um, along with my questioning to kind of plant this seed of a possible, a possible hope, right. That he could actually, like, he could actually get what he wanted. Right. Well, if you're, if you're, if you're investigating, you know, John Piper, well (laughs) then, then, well then one of the things he's really strong on from his Calvinist background is that God is absolutely sovereign. So whatever it is that God absolutely desires out of creation, God will absolutely get. So then the question falls, well, what does God absolutely want out of creation? Right, 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 exactly. And at that point, I wasn't uh, well-versed enough in Christian universalism. I wasn't nuanced enough in my my thoughts on it, or certainly my arguments. So I presented it to one of my friends who just, you know, we were at lunch one day, and, and I was talking about this, and I just in a real naive kind of, unenlightened way said, wouldn't it, you know, I came across second Peter three, nine the other day. And like, I read a couple articles and I'm, I'm pretty sure that there's something to this Christian universalism thing. And I looked over the table, you know, as he's eating, it's almost, I almost remember just like the food falling out of his mouth. Cause he was just so, <laughs> you know, jaw dropped and he, he was livid, absolutely livid and just shot back with some really, really good, counter arguments. And one of those being fairly um, experiential or, or emotional. And that was that his, his sister and brother-in-law at the time were on the field. And um, we'll just call it Central Africa as well. And they had gone through just hell on earth, you know, for several years in a row out there putting their neck on the line. Right. And that was one of his biggest counter arguments was like, how, how could all this be true? Right. So what you're saying, Nick, is that like in the end, God's going to make it all right. And so my, my, my sister and brother are basically just out there risking their life for no reason, right? And well, at that the, point, if, I just kind of said, you know, you're right. And I dismissed it and moved on, you know? Yeah, and if, you're, if, if the way that you think about the gospel is the gospel is the good news that if we accept Jesus, then we don't have to go to hell. We can go uh, to be in heaven after we die, if that's exactly. kind of what it all boils down to. Well, if that's if if you question that, then what's the purpose? Yes. What are we— 
then, um, and I think we're going to get to this later on is, well, how can we think about uh, stating the gospel message or the mission message in, in maybe a, a more holistic yes. uh, kind of way. But just to back to where you are back then, that guy was like, well, <laughs> if every if everybody's going to win up in heaven, then, then why are my relatives out there uh, risking their lives? Yeah, yeah, and we'll get to that in a little bit. In my story, you know, it was a valid point at that time. I, I just wasn't. I think the Lord providentially kept me from going too deep in this, uh, you know, and trying to figure out arguments or counterpoints in that season because he he knew that I needed to grow in him and, and some of the fundamentals first, you know. And so, so yeah, that takes us to kind of the mission years, I call them. You know, my wife and I met in um, southwest Missouri at a Southern Baptist church. And we it was pretty soon on. We knew right off the bat um, as we started dating and, and going toward marriage that we both had a heart for international missions. Um, in fact, we <laughs> just a quick sh- funny story. We It was one of those relationships where we kind of we're in the same life group, saw each other from a distance at church, but she was so cold to me, David, that I, it took, it took a mission trip to South America to thaw her out <laughs> to where, <laughs> where she finally gave me the, you know, the light of day to, to talk to her. And, um, we Wait joked a second. We, this isn't that you saw yourself at the first time you saw yourself at church. It wasn't zing and, and <laughs> music and you all ran into each other's arms. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> In in my mind, that's what it was. But, you know, at least what she was putting forth, not at all. She she described herself as an ice queen, you know, and so, no, it wasn't that magical. Uh... <laughs> and I, I was kind of shocked. I was a little arrogant, right? Like she's one of, you know, the ratio is like 10 to 1, right? I mean, it's pretty typical, right? In a in a Southern Baptist or just a just a church in general, it's it seems to be more single women than single men. And so you can imagine the the disappointment and just the shock, right? That how could she not be interested in me? I mean, I'm, one of, I'm one of only two or three qualified bachelors and she's got 15 other women like at my door, right? That she's competing with. <laughs> and so, you know, I'll never forget that first night in South America. Um, it was my pastor and I in the same room and it was late that night. We had done a bunch of done a bunch of projects with the team there on the ground already. And I rolled over and I said, I said, Brandon, I got to talk to you about something. And he says, don't even say it. It's Kaylee, isn't it? (laughs) And I was like, how did you know? And he's like, come on, I can see the look on your faces. And let's be real. Most qualified bachelor, most qualified bachelorette. Like you have to be crazy to think that I didn't see this coming. He said, do me one favor. Do not jeopardize God's mission for your mission of love. Wait till after the trip, okay? And that was it <laughs> that night. <laughs> so that's kind of our funny, you know, story. Uh, just starting off on that foot, and so yeah, to well, flash it, it really, it really kind of sounds like a Hallmark movie. <laughs> yeah, it, it does. After a while, it, it almost was going to be a comic tragedy, but it ended up being a, I guess, somewhat of a Hallmark movie. Yeah, at that point, so. So you you uh, you come back from that trip, um, and th- then you kind of get your life going. It sounds like you you were CPA, she was a RN. You kind of got a family going. Is that kind of where it went next? Yeah. So we 
we continued to plug away at our careers. And um, on the side, we still took short-term mission trips, did a lot of local outreach. Um, there always seemed to be this kind of back of the mind goal that we were going to get over to the field, you know, for long-term service. Yeah. So, and that was a long process. Um, you know, I think God again had some things for us to discover, to grow in and to, to be sure that uh, we did feel called. Right. And so sure enough, you know, I would say this was probably, Oh man, when our second kid was born, Bella, our, our daughter, our middle daughter, um, we, I'll never forget, I was reading through J.D. Greer's uh, book with some guys at the firm. We actually had a gospel group there. Um, his book called Gospel, I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, David, but it, um, it, it had some pretty compelling and intense stats. And, you know, being somewhat of a numbers guy, one of those stats that stuck out to me was uh, kind of this reality of approximately 2.25 billion, you know, we're still unreached at this point. And, and so I had a vision that I, I went into my office, uh, partner's office at that point and said, Hey, you got a minute to talk, close the door and just started, just started sharing from my heart. And, and we both got emotional with it. I, I said, Hey, Scott, I'm gonna need to take the rest of the day off. And on my way to a park that I often went to, to reflect and to meditate and just to read God's word. He just gave me this vision, um, this vision of, it seemed like Southeast Asian or, or just Asian peoples kind of on their hands and knees crying. And, and I could, I, I still to this day don't know if it tears of joy or sorrow, but it was so intense in my mind. And I felt the Holy spirit give me this love for, for people that I'd not had before. And so God, God used that to kind of, that was kind of the catalyst that, that kind of initiated some of these first steps for us toward the field. And my wife had a similar vision too. And so two years post that, you know, we're signed up with our, our missions organization. We're getting our fundraising efforts underway. Our church is behind us a hundred percent. Um, and man, like the first month of fundraising, we had $50,000 in the door out of about 110, 120,000. So God was really moving and shaking things, getting people excited, you know, about, about the, the mission. Um, but you'll see in my outline, or I think I put it in there, there was still this kind of this seed of hope that God could be infinitely more than I ever thought he could, could be infinitely more that I've ever, that I'd ever discovered at that point as far as his. And so on our prayer cards, our theme verse was second Peter three, nine. And it, as I look back at that, I'm like, man, I wasn't trying to like, that, that wasn't some kind of attempted subliminal messaging. It was just truly this deep hope, right? That somehow he could actually, again, like get what he wanted, right? Well, this uh, is this is interesting, you know, because you've read, you, you said you're familiar with John Piper. Of course, John Piper would not want to affirm that God actually, truly, ultimately wants all to be right. saved. Um, so that would be the, I would call that the Calvinist or the Augustinian Calvinist position. Right. But what you're talking about is, is from the uh, free will Arminian theological tradition, the idea that no, God actually does want 
God yes. does sincerely desire that all will be saved. And mm-hmm. so 2 Peter 3, 9 would be one of the verses that would fit in that uh, Arminian uh, free will uh, kind of system. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. And then, of course, you know, similar verses like first in First Timothy 2 and First Timothy 4 along those same lines, you know, kind of this idea that that God desires or wills, you know, and that he is the savior of all, right? Especially those who are believing. And so, you know, when we launched out to the field um, to go to Central Africa, I was square in the camp of, of a lighter kind of version of the, the traditionalist view as far as hell was concerned, right? The infernalist view. I, I was of the C.S. Lewis variety, um, C.S. Lewisian, Arminian variety, right? Like, I think it was in, gosh, The Great Divorce or one of his books, right? The classic, like, it's not so much that hell is locked from the outside. It's the gates are locked from the inside, right? It's people's free choice that is that is enslaving them or damning them. Um, alongside that, I also believed that God would give everybody at least one chance, regardless of whether they had heard of Jesus or not, at least one chance to have his, his, his nature revealed in some way or, or who he was. And, and then of course, by default, their guilt, right? Kind of that Romans mm-hmm. one reality. Yeah. Now at that, at that point, were you thinking that, okay, God is going to give everybody a legitimate chance either in this life or Maybe when right at the point of death, when they're to have a moment, or mm. maybe after, or had you had you worked through any of those questions? Yeah, I, I, based on my tradition, and and based on the fact, as you know, that um, you know, there's no room for a post a posthumous or a post mortem opportunity. It had to be right in this life. Yeah, where Somehow. you were then, it had to be before. Where you Where I was then, exactly. Yeah. And so, you know, we went into Central Africa and we were giddy and excited, aware, of course, as much as we could be of the struggles and, and some of the, the barriers that would be put in our way. Um, and we had a fairly idyllic and, uh, how would you say it, kind of rosy first few weeks. We went right to the retreat in the capital of the country where we were in, which was very beautiful, had been built up and maintained just beautifully by our organization. And we spent the first few weeks there in quarantine due to COVID. We had a conference. And so then after that, we, we were shipped out to our, to our ministry location. It was really an onboarding location that was going to get us up to speed on, on Arabic. It was going to get us up to speed on just cultural uh, adaptation, right. And, and just, just living life in Central Africa and so the reason, first of all, the reason why I keep saying Central Africa, uh, for those of listening, um, instead of the actual country is just due to security reasons. Uh, as most of folks know, you know, there's, there can be quite a bit of extreme Islam in these, in these kind of countries. So, um, so anyway, you know, it wasn't, but just a few hours, maybe a few days where, you know, this reality set in that we were the minority, of course, like by a long shot, um, just surrounded with, in the village, I think there's 15,000 
10 to 15,000, most, mostly Arab Muslims, right? And the country as a whole is predominantly uh, Muslim. And so I think that that reality hadn't quite set in until um, a couple months in when the, the this is where the story gets juicy, okay? This is where things get crazy. Um, but some of those, some of those, kind of realizations and, and just struggles started setting in before we got, uh, before we encountered a, a pretty, pretty, pretty course shifting event. Um, so yeah, that, and so what happened two months in, as I, as I kind of outlined for you on the outline, David was, there was actually a rebel group from, uh, I won't say the country just because it'd probably give it away as far as our country, but there was a rebel mm-hmm. group in the North that came in attempting to overthrow the military and the government. And what happened over the course of a few days was uh, as our country's military started fighting these guys, they got closer and closer to the capital. And you can imagine like how that wore on us, how that affected us mentally you know, here we are in a village where the only thing connecting us uh, and the capital is, you know, where the airport was and resources was just a, I mean, a dirt road. But when I say dirt road, most people are probably thinking, okay, just like a little country road, you know, straight shot. But we're talking major potholes, twists and turns and just washed out side, you know, sides. And and so we're, we're getting updates from you know, our team leader, our unit leader every day, like, hey, there's been, you know, we'd get a message saying, hey, there's actually been a, a rebel group identified closer to uh, a certain city, right? We're going to actually going to have to, for the unit, we're going to have to elevate the risk level from a three to a four. And then the next day we got an update saying, hey, the rebels are actually within 150 kilometers of the capital. Um, we're going to go ahead and elevate to a four and a half, five, and we're going to have we're going to call in all the teams to the capital, you know? <laughs> so here we are two months into being into this country, having hardly learned a lick of language or culture or anything. And we're, we're now finding ourselves in the capital, hoping that the rebels don't make it before we can get a flight out. And in the meantime, the president actually was killed on the front lines um, at that point. Now this so, this does not this does not sound like a Hallmark movie. <laughs> yeah, it, it wasn't like the the story my wife and had in South South America where everything was just you know tropical and beautiful and, and things were just coming together. This this was not a Hallmark movie. You're you're correct. Um, you know, and she she was just of course beside herself, struggling. Um, some of us dudes that were a little more. I would say immature and naive. We kind of deep down thought it was a little cool, you know, but um, just that was a naive thought, you know, looking back at it because things were getting really dicey. And so long story short, not to go into too many details about the actual incursion and the, the, the killing of the president, the military then took over, scrapped the constitution and established a junta. We got evacuated to Uganda and that was insane. I mean, we just... Everything was kind of stripped bare. We were in a, a completely, there was a lot of relief and a lot of um, just, we took a big sigh, a deep breath, uh, breath of relief, but there was also 
just kind of some big questions that started coming up at that point. Okay. So you get to, you get to Uganda and, um, what, what happens next? Yeah. So after we came down off of the high and kind of the intensity of the moment in central Africa, we really started just, um, kind of honestly getting stir crazy, you know, it was kind of cabin fever reality. We, we couldn't speak much of the language there. Of course, several. So, did, uh, so, so you went back, you, you actually went back to where you had been before. So after Uganda, we did. And during that season in Uganda, we were kind of disillusioned. We were kind of, um, we felt like the mission was in jeopardy. We weren't sure that we were going to be able to go back to central Africa because things were so tumultuous. Um, there was still rebel activity uh, ongoing, as well as a completely new, illegally established military government. And so I think what started happening at that point was some of our, some of my Arminianist strongholds started being chipped away at because I, I realized, number one, on a deeper level that it was definitely not going to be up to me in any way, shape or form to be able to convince our Central African neighbors in the village of, of the truth of the gospel, right? Um, I knew that, of course, before we left, but it, just a, at a deeper level, we were so incapable, not only because of our lack of language and our lack of familiarity with the country, but because we had just been ripped away from it and we're stuck in Uganda. And the other thing that I think started really impacting me was just the vast numbers of non-Christians I had seen in Central Africa as well as Uganda at that point. And so I just started thinking about, I just, I truly started thinking about eschatological things, you know, the, the eschatology. And I, I dug into some books, one of those being Francis Chan's Erasing Hell with Preston Sprinkle. And I was looking for something other than the traditional model at that point, because it started not feeling, feeling right. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's so, interesting that that Francis uh, Chan Preston Sprinkle collaboration is interesting because later on, yes, uh, Preston Sprinkle sort of backed away from uh, sort of the confident position he had taken in the Erasing Hell book, yep. and and he's become since then more moderate, and he's even recognized that um, that Christian universalism can be it's not it's not a position that he holds. But he has recognized at least uh, that Robin Perry's expression of Christian universalism, as it appears in Zondervan's second edition on Four Views on Hell, should be yeah. considered a legitimate uh, orthodox option. Right. So I think that that's – I remember when I read that Francis Chan Preston Sprinkle book, and then I didn't imagine that you know years later he would be the editor – Preston Sprinkle would be the editor of a book with a Christian universalist position in it. And as the editor of that book, he would say he thinks that Robin Perry's Christian Universalist position that he, he goes through there is a game changer and that it it yeah. is an actual orthodox uh, option that people should be able to consider. 
Right. And I, I ended up reading that book as well. Um, this was after we went back to the States and even one of my- Oh, buddies, you read you you read that Four Views on Zondervan's second edition of Four Views on Hell too. So you read yeah, Robin which Perry's. You know the, yeah. Which, you know, the first edition didn't even have, of course, a universalist yeah. reconciliation position. Yeah. You know. That was really because I was there for the whole arc of that because in 1990, 1995, 1996, I wrote a paper on the different views of hell and I, a doctor of ministry paper, and I consulted that Zondervan's four views mm-hmm. of hell. And if, there wasn't a Christian universalist position in there at all. So then fast forward 20 years, second edition, yeah. and it's Preston Sprinkle of all people who's the editor. And then it's Robin Perry of all people who gets invited to write the yeah. The Christian Universalist position in there, and then Preston Sprinkle ends up saying, "Hey, good job, Robin Perry. I'm not, I'm not, don't, not convinced, but I am convinced that your way of mm. putting this together is an orthodox option that should be given consideration." Yeah, and one of my buddies uh, at the church we uh, are no longer attending a Southern Baptist church. He, he's actually a minority there. He's a conditionalist, and when we were discussing the second edition, and conditionalist of- means just for those listening, conditionalist is sort of shorthand for conditional immortality or the idea of uh, that people, that hell is a cessation or an annihilation of existence. Yes. So it's a right. conditionalist is conditional immortality. Yeah, exactly. An annihilationalist. Yeah. And, and he actually, he, he read the book and he said, you know, Robin Perry's uh, portion of that book, as far as his argument, it's the strongest one in the book. And so he affirmed that. And um, I thought that was really telling, even though he still holds to, um, an annihilationalist or conditionalist perspective. So, yeah. So we, back to the story, we, we ended up getting re-released to go back to Central Africa and the struggle continued. I would say the climax of my dark nights really was back when we were in Central Africa. We, we went back to the retreat in the capital and I'll never forget. Wait a second, wait a second. So you're back in, so you're back in Central Africa at this point and you yep. have read, you're, you're now aware of this whole conversation. Well, you're, you're, so the second, the four views on hell book actually didn't come into play until later. Okay. Um, but I, I was somewhat reassured, but not really <laughs> by Francis Chan and Preston Sprinkle. Again, these were classic arguments that I'd heard right, right on the view, but. So when you, know, you go back to Central at that point. Yeah. So when you go, go back to Central Africa, you're still. You're working yeah. through these things, but you had the the Erasing Hell book by um, Chan and Sprinkle at that point then kind of uh, bolstered your, oh, no, this is something I still need to take seriously, yeah. and hell is real, and, and it's I eternal, and through. it's eternal separation, so I need to keep going. Yeah, exactly. You know, the climax of the dark night was when I was up on the roof of our retreat center in the Capitol, and I was working out, I was listening to some music. And as I stood up, this and sounds looked, very, this sounds very much like the book of Acts. You're up on the roof like yeah. Peter. Yeah. Except <laughs> my vision was not as uh, glorious and, <laughs> and, uh, and redeeming. It was pretty dismal and dark. I wish that would have happened in a way, but in some ways I don't. So I'm up on the roof and it, it probably was a roof similar to the one that, that Peter was, I mean, just real rudimentary concrete, you know, roof and I was overlooking the the river there and then as I as my gaze kind of transitioned to the rest of the the broken down third world city you know where there's just massive humanity everywhere horns honking 
people living in poverty. You know, I, I see people bowing down for their afternoon prayer. And I hear, you know, you can just, I hear the, the call to prayer being issued from the imam. And you can just feel this, this presence and, and just this, it just felt so hopeless because the, the volume of people that were just, you know, in my mind back then entrapped and enslaved to Islam was just too much for me to handle. And I thought up on that roof, I had the thought like, this cannot be the reality of things. Like, like, I don't know how many infants, I don't know how many young children, youth, old people are dying on an average basis in in that country at that time. But I know there's a lot more than what we, you know, death rate we see in the West, right? And it's, Mm -hmm. I guarantee you, not a single one of them had had a gospel witness, nor, or even if they had revelation from God, there's so much stacked against them, right? As far as I could never believe in the Christian God because of the disgrace that I would experience from my family, right? I would be disgracing Muhammad. I would be going against, I would become an infidel, infidel, right? Mm-hmm. And so that was kind of the climax of it. And I, I wrestled through that as we got back to the village. I continued to wrestle with my team leader. And I thought one day I thought, you know what, God, like, I don't know if I believe any of this stuff anymore, but I do know one thing. I love being in this environment. I love learning a new language. I love the challenge of it. So I'm going to just stick it out (laughs) no matter what, you know? And that was kind of just that, that hardcore, like, I don't know if it's a Midwestern thing or just that resolve to just, this is what we signed up for. This is what we're going to do. Um, and so flash forward after that, you know, I broke out of that dark night. I start, the language started coming really quickly. We started our English courses. We ended up teaching two semesters. I started playing soccer with the local men. I mean, relationships were just firing in all cylinders. And I, and that really brought me out of that funk to where this, these issues or these doubts that I had were kind of put to the side at that point. And so that, that kind of got us to the end of our first year in Central Africa. And Ironically, as I was thriving and just having an amazing uh, ministry experience, I mean, I I was able to share the gospel, started sharing the gospel in the language, a very rudimentary version of it, but I started sharing it with many and we would talk about faith, you know, Islam, Christianity. And so I was, I felt like this is it, like we're on the right path, you know, and, um, but ironically, my wife, she was, she was kind of in in an opposite boat. Uh, she was really struggling, uh, just emotionally and with some, uh, another wave of culture shock. And, and David, she was, she had the hard part. She was dealing, she was working with the women, which this is not all sects of Islam. Um, but the particular sect that we were dealing with was very traditional. And so it tended to be very, uh, derogatory toward women, it tended to treat them more or less as property. And the women that she was meeting with, these women were usually one of three to four wives, um, you know, that uh, of that household and, and just the stories she would hear and, and just how entrapped and enslaved and, and mistreated they were. It really, it really started to bother her. And so flash forward, we were going to beginning of the next year, 
we went to the capital. We were going to go to Kenya for some conferences and training. My wife was out. Uh, we were getting ready to fly out a couple days after we had got to the capital. She was out with my son at that time, uh, doing some air, uh, running some errands and getting some vaccinations done. And on her way back, she was actually pulled over by, uh, we'll just call them military police, uh, presidential palace guards. And due to a series of miscommunications, she ended up being assaulted by these men, uh, both physically and verbally. She was hit in the face. She was dragged in and out of the car multiple times. And, um, you know, my son is in the backseat just losing his mind. And I think the most traumatic thing for my wife in that moment um, was just not knowing what was going to happen to her son, you know, to our son. She she was going to, I mean, they were going to do whatever to her that they were going to do. You know, she had no control over that. But just to then also see that we did, she didn't know what was going to happen with our kid, that was probably the most difficult thing in that situation. But thank God one of the captains on the, the force that day saw what was happening and knew that it, it was getting bad. And so he intervened and um, got her back in the car and she, she drove off and um, she, I'll never forget. She told me afterward, a few months afterwards, she said, I got in that car and I said, F this place, I'm done. And this is, this is insane, you know? And so we, she got back to the retreat center and we, we all debriefed and then try to get her stable. And we ended up going back to the site where it happened. Long story short, that was of course, uh, I mean, I can't understate it. I can't overstate it. It was very traumatic. Right. And mm-hmm. so the plan was okay. From our acting unit leaders at the time, you guys go ahead and, and go on to Kenya get your conferences and trainings out of the way. But while you're there, go ahead and set up some trauma counseling. Um, so that's what we did. That's what we did. Um, hoping that there could be some kind of good counseling there, right? And, and good answers and, and kind of a, an eventual return at that point. Um, now, is, this, is this when you, from there, do you go back to the United States? So yeah, after two months in Kenya, it, it just was not working. The trauma counseling we were receiving was not working. Um, and my wife, you know, anytime she'd go out to get groceries or or go do some errands, I mean, she's seeing African men with assault rifles at every turn, you know, whether it's a security guard, a mall cop or police or military. And so she was being re-triggered regularly. And so we ended up just deciding, you know, we need to go back. We need to go back to the States and really figure things out. So that's what we did. Um, yeah. And that was that was really tough. Um, you can see in the notes, you know, we we felt a little bit of ah, dejection, maybe some embarrassment or shame on my part. But in reality, like we should have never felt that. Right. We it was an in, intensely extreme situation. And praise God, my wife um, got some really good counseling and some therapy as well as as me. And in that season that we were back in the States, I really think that my Arminianism started to crumble. Um, I really just could no longer reconcile the fact that man 
man's free will could trump out or, or could have more influence than God's sovereignty or God's will. And as I, that was kind of deconstructing a bit, I happened to meet a new member at our church who was a five point tulip Calvinist. And we really hit it off uh, and really just started doing a lot of ministry together on our, in our time back in the States. Um, and so this may sound crazy, but we actually, my wife and I ended up taking a revision trip, a reentry trip back into uh, central Africa. And, David, you'll never believe it, but we during that week we even dr- we drove by the the presidential palace where the incident happened. We drove by there twice, and just a testimony to God's healing power. My wife had very little responses and, and triggers um, in those moments. She was actually fairly at peace. It's so a long story short. We ended up uh, getting a lot of green lights and a lot of confirmation we felt like God was giving us the okay to go back and so we did some extra fundraising and um, ended I up I think your long- your your midwestern is really showing at this point <laughs> yeah yeah most people whoever's going to listen to this podcast is like maybe it's your midwestern or maybe you're you're just clinically insane uh, uh, you need to be getting some therapy or something well I, it was interesting to me when you tell the story you come back and you're feeling defeated like I got beat I yeah. got beat over there. And it's almost like I not I don't want to let this beat me. I don't want to be the story for the rest of my life to be I went over there and I got beat and I was afraid. And yeah. so that's that's it. And, and I so think it almost it sounds like you're going back almost to face your fears or Yeah. Uh to not to make a new ending to that story of some kind. Yeah. And I think on the positive side, there there was the motivation was to have some closure. Uh, and to face my wife, especially to face her fears again, to have some closure. But on the negative side, I do think we let too much of our our proclivity or our natural wiring and even just some of the things that we had been immersed in as far as doctrine, right? And, and just kind of at all costs, right? Go and, and sacrifice, right? It, right. Well, that's, this is not the way this is not the way the mission story is supposed to end. We, yeah. we went, we went, it was horrible. So we came back. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're most sane people would be like, we went, it was horrible. And that means we're not supposed to go back. <laughs> right. And so, yeah, it, you know, we, we never felt pressure from our church, our organization, a little bit inadvertently, I think, from the org when we were in Kenya. But I think we just put some pressure on our on ourselves. Um, but also, I do think God was opening the door to go back again. Um, you know, and if the main driving, one of the main driving forces or ethos is like, hey, there's billions that will perish without this message. If this message doesn't get out, like we do need to make big sacrifices. And if And if they only have this life, right? If God is not the God of the ages in his patience and his long suffering, and this is their only chance, you know, that that inevitably plays into the motivation. Yeah. And if I and if I'm kind of imagining what you're thinking, if you've been if you've been thinking about Calvinism is, OK, 
maybe there are just a few elect people that right. are there. But if they are there, then I need to be the one that that gives them the message so that when they hear it, they will they will respond. And if I don't yeah. go, then maybe. Well, I don't know how exactly that, because that is kind of a conundrum, how you work that part out. Because if they are elect, it seems like they're going to hear it one way or another. But but, but I want to be a part of God's will and God's plan and do my part so that he can, so that God can save those who he has elected to save. And so I need to go and proclaim the gospel, which is something that some I think some people don't understand about Calvinism, is that mm. from a Calvinist perspective, you can still be very motivated to do evangelism. Yeah, yep. Absolutely. My buddy that I told you about that I had met on our on our furlough, he's a five point Calvinist. He he does truly love the Lord. Um, and he his house is a base for the hurt, the broken, the downcast, the outcast. I mean, he, he they pour themselves out every day for those that are lost and those that are hurting and broken and, and need the Lord. Right. Um there's some things I could say about how about how I still think that theology produces some really intense internal conflict and and some maybe rotten fruit. Um, but well, and I there's don't... also in Calvinism, there's also uh, built in the idea of a perseverance to the end. So yes, you, that that, yep. that the idea that you would give up is just no. You need to the, the sign that you are one of the elect is that you will persevere to the end. So. And that's, Keep on going. and that's what I've seen. So on the Ar- Armenianist camp, the the grind and the pressure is you've got to get out there as much as you can to help convince people to freely choose, right? On the Calvinist side, it's that perseverance of the saints. Look, we know that whoever needs to be in is going to be in. But in order to prove our salvation, we got we to gotta be at it all the time too, right? We got to make sure that we're really growing in holiness and righteousness and, and, and love and service. And so internally that just, it's not a good, it's not a good thing. And I, I, I get that you can be balanced within that, but for guys like me and for guys that want to like my buddy that want to continue to go further and grow in their faith, that's just the logical end, right? Like it's this kind of maximization of effort and, tireless tireless effort right to 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 play the part in the it's almost like it it's all on you in a way right it can Definitely well that's one of the things well that's one of the things that i noticed that can get going both on the armenian side and the calvinist side is people who are kind of uh almost working themselves to death yeah spiritually for one reason or another and on the on the Calvinist side, it's the perseverance of the saints. And on the Arminian side, there is this question about, well, can you lose your salvation or not? And there's one side that says, oh, yeah, you can lose your salvation, so you need to keep your salvation up to date. And then the other side says, well, you can't lose your salvation. Once you're saved, you're always saved. But then that runs into once you're saved, you're once saved, always saved, as long as you're acting like you're saved. Because then the question could be, well, if you fall away from the faith, then the then the response could be, well, apparently you were never saved in the first place. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. You know, so there's always these yep. these this um, wondering or this anxiety that yes. can get going, and that can really start driving everything. 
that's exactly what it is. And I was at a breaking point with it. You know, I was, I was done, I think, with a full-scale Arminianism because of that very reason. And so I was ripe to consider more of, of the, the beauty of God's sovereignty in the Calvinist camp. Mm-hmm. And in fact, when we went back to the field, so on our way back to the field, we stopped off in France um, to get French under our belt. We had already gotten the Arabic we needed. And so we were going to get French and then head back to Central Africa. I was, I was somewhat of a convinced Calvinist. I still, I still couldn't reconcile, you know, these God being all in all right in first Corinthians 15 and second Peter three, nine, his desire that all shall be saved and, and some of these other things. And so I definitely went into it with more of a strong understanding of God's sovereignty in the process, right? John six forty four, right? Like no one, like no one can come to the father unless I draw, unless I draw him. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and even as we see in Ephesians two, eight, like by grace through faith, not of your, you know, this is a gift of God, not of your own accord. So that, yeah, that it's not out of, it's not out of you. It's, it's, it's God's thing. And, and you and Jonathan Mitchell, did an amazing job just with that passage and others kind of kind of really breaking down this false notion of lib- uh, free will, you know, libertarian free will in the Arminianist camp on your guys' recent episode. So anyway, we we went back to headed back to the field and soon after we got there, this is crazy, but we had a massive bed bug infestation. <laughs> and um well, those are those are vicious. We uh, there was a uh, there was a person in our church that um, that had a situation like this, and so I went. We got a group of us went over to their home to try to get rid of those, and they're they're persistent, uh, they're ancient and persistent. Uh, yeah. Do you have uh, your flame thro- flamethrowers and gasoline and? Uh, well. <laughs> Bed, bed, or bug bombs. Yeah, we, it's, so I can just, and there, and those, if you get a, if you, I mean, she came to church one morning and she was just crying because she had these bed bug bites on her and Mm. showed them to me, you know, and there, there's nothing funny about, it's it's funny because if you, if, if you just think, if you just heard some, had heard something about, oh, bed bugs, well, once you, if you ever experience them, there's nothing funny about them. No, no, yeah, and that that old kind of good night phrase that we use with our kids, you know, sleep tight. Don't, don't let, let the, the bed, bed bugs, bugs bite. bite. You know, it's it is a lot more. It's that doesn't do it justice. That's it's treating it a little tritely, you know. And so we we basically, I mean, we were at it uh, soon after we landed in France. Um, I would say within the first two or three weeks, we, we figured this out. We actually, I think had brought them over from the States. They did, I guess customs didn't really check them at the gate, (laughs) but uh, man, we were battling those for two to three weeks and I'll never forget. This happened to be on one of our holidays, our breaks. So we're learning French, you know, we're kind of rolling our sleeves up, getting, getting another language under our belt. And we discover this, you know, and that ruined our vacation plans. And so we spent those two weeks just battling those bed bugs. And I'll never forget. So we were off campus and the rest of our students, our fellow missionaries were on campus. 
And so we had to go use laundry at the campus site. And I'll never forget being in the laundry room one day and one of our students, she walked, fellow students, she walked in and she said, hey, how's it going? Oh, I see you're using the, the machines. No big deal. And she set her stuff down and then walked back out. And a minute or two later, so at this point, everybody had knew everybody knew we were fighting bed bugs and we had a massive infestation. And she came back in and she's like, uh, are you guys still, you know, like fighting bed bugs or whatever? And I said, yeah. And she's like, oh, OK, well, I'm just going to go ahead and take my stuff and I'll be back tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just like, oh, you know, just just felt like a, you know, like a lep, like I had leprosy or something. And, you know, at that point, I was just like, this is this is crazy. Like, and so we made the decision to basically quarantine, you know, and, and not really do much at all with with our fellow students. And so in that in that season, I just. I was struggling majorly with um, with that and with all the changes and just with, you know, kind of this sin, guilt, shame, repentance, do it all over again cycle. I think a lot of our tradition uh, and definitely just my natural wiring, it, it can be conducive to, to get stuck in that cycle, kind of this, you got to right? Like you were talking about, you got to prove, prove that you're called, prove that you're growing in holiness constantly. And I remember my buddy, who's a Calvinist, he sent me some, I was just telling him how much I was struggling. And he sent me some John Piper quotes or some sermon links. And one of the main quotes or passages that my buddy wanted me to hone in on was this, this, this passage or this saying that Piper had about, um, you know, how little we we acknowledge God and his good grace, graces to us and his common grace that he extends every day. And, and we're just so, we're such reprobates, you know, like the very table that you eat your food on, uh, you know, you better be giving, giving thanks to God for it. the very bed in which you make love with your spouse. You, it, I can't remember exactly the language, but it was just so intense and so condemnatory in a way and nothing against Piper. I think he has a lot of good things to say, but in that moment, I just thought, man, like, have I, have I got it wrong? Am I viewing God and his cosmological plan and his, his love for man in the right way? And I just came to a breaking point. I said, I can't, I can't do this anymore. Um, you know, the bed bugs, the isolation, kind of just these really dark thoughts and, and just dissatisfaction with myself. And so that, for whatever reason, started me down this path of re-examining some core things about the faith, uh, especially as it related to God's nature and how he viewed man. You know, that's kind of in a nutshell, I can't remember who's said it. I've been reading lots of books lately and podcasts on this subject, but you know, I think it was in, I think it was Andrew Horonich's book, uh, Once Loved, Always Loved, The Logic of Apocatastasis. He quoted an author as, 
as saying something to the effect of, you know, really what is at the bottom of our of our study of eschatology is really a study of who God is and his nature, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and his plans for the cosmos. And so as I as I honed in on that, it became clear that that's, that was what I was going for. It wasn't so much like a, like specifically what is an accurate doctrine of hell. Of course that ties in, but it was more or less, who is God? What, what, what does he think of us? What does he think of me? What does he think of the world around us? What, you know, this plan uh, in which some get in and some don't, doesn't seem to match like the plan from the beginning. And that's when I started researching and looking into things. And I came providentially, I came across your podcast and, you know, I, 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 in my outline, I, you know, before I came across it, I was just like, is anybody out there? Is anybody else thinking these thoughts or asking these questions? Mm -hmm. And that's when I stumbled across your podcast and I was just blown away. Um, and I came across the likes of Brad Jersak. You had in- interviewed him, you, Thomas Talbot, Jerry Boschman, David Bentley Hart, all these, you know, I think you've had Robin Perry on before. Yeah. I've had him um, a couple of times. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and all these, especially when I started reading Jersak's book, like it, it felt like there was just a whole new world that opened up to me. You know, that song from Aladdin just came to my mind, you know, and they're on the carpet ride and, you know it's just like that's how i felt um and and really jersak's book her gates shall never be shut blew the doors open for me um i remember after language school and, and picking up the kids and getting them down every every day and every night i would i would go into our room and say goodnight to my wife and i would giddily giddily uh leave the room and grab my book and just start reading and i did that for days on end and i was just i was so excited like a kid in a candy store reading um some of these some of these themes and concepts and and, and ex, exegetical ar- arguments that i'd never considered before and the culminating kind of a, the the straw that broke the camel's back for me it was one night in, in mid to late February of this year, I was sitting in our living room and I was kind of coming to the climactic conclusion of Jersak's book, which was, um, you know, essentially after he had laid a lot of foundation that Jerusalem's gates, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, her gates, it literally says they will never be shut. And there's an invitation coming from the bride and the the groom and the bride, right? Come, this, yeah. The spirit and the, the spirit, the spirit and the bride, spirit giving this invitation. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of pieces started. Uh, my mind was blown at that point, and I remember looking out our big sliding glass door, uh, sliding glass doors, and we were in an amazing spot in, in France there. And I remember looking at the Alps. And this was about 1030 at night. The glow of the moon was was kind of encapsulating the the perimeter of the Alps and, and there's snow on on them. And it just was such a an amazing image in that moment when this thought kind of this 
this aha moment of like, wow, God, like maybe your love is actually unending and, and as big and as deep and as wide and as glorious as the Alps and even more so. And I think God used that image to, to, to just confirm everything that I'd hoped and dreamed and thought of, of him, that it could all be true, right? That he could mm-hmm. truly all recon, uh, reconcile all to himself, that his will and his desire for reconciliation could be brought to fruition, right? So that was a key moment in the journey for me, for sure. Well, the, and I couldn't, uh, I couldn't stop well, there. You know, I kept... I kept re- kept on reading, went right through Jersak's book to Thomas Talbot's book, The Inescapable Love of God, and then the, uh, the Evangelical Universalist, and, and on on through, and kept listening to your podcast too. Well, I'm, I think we had a similar, you have a similar kind of experience. Anybody that, that goes on this journey where you've really struggled with all of this, uh, like I had a real emotional experience when I read uh, Talbot's Inescapable Love of God. Yeah. And it was just all of a sudden, this just all sort of become, it all started clicking together. I've tried to explain this to people. I said, you know, if you look at the Bible with Calvinist glasses on, you can find there, there are certain sort of ways of looking at different passages and putting them together that can, you can get a, a Calvinist perspective. I and mean, if you look with the Arminian perspective, you can find those. But what's surprising is, let me give you this, uh, this Christian Universalist pair of glasses. Try this on. And yeah. you can see, you can see a whole kind of new set of arguments and ways of thinking through things, and then I got to the position of okay, I can make a biblical argument for Arminianism. I can make a bibl- biblical argument for Calvinism. I can make mm. a biblical argument for Christian Universalism. Uh, which one of these positions seems to? resonate most deeply within me about the goodness and the nature and the character of God and the purposes of God and creation. Well, then it just kind of became obvious to me. Well, obviously, if the Christian Universalist one can be biblically, as as at least as biblically solid as the others, if not more so, then why what what's preventing me from embracing this? Yes. And then I then I realized, well, the thing the only thing that would be preventing me is, well, then I'd have to admit that I was changing my mind, that I had been, that I changed my mind. That's a little embarrassing. And then maybe some <laughs> other people might not understand me. Mm. Uh, but, I, uh, or, even, you know, even might take exception to me. Mm. Uh, but I thought that at that point, with everything that I had been through, I would, it was still, I would still much rather embrace this for my own spiritual, like, well being and sanity. Yes. And sanity. I needed to embrace this myself and then just go forward with it. And um, I think what then got me into the podcasting was wanting to share my experience with Mm. others, because I just had the feeling like if I had gone through through this experience and I had read these books and I had been thinking about all these things, that there were other people that had that were going through the same thing, too. So let me just put my experience out there. Let me just do a podcast and. Um, like uh, when we talked before, I wasn't doing this because I thought I was the world's foremost leading expert on it, but I was somebody yeah. who who had become, who had studied it a lot and I wanted to find out more about it. So I thought through podcasting, I can put my views out there. I can let them be tested. Other people mm. can agree with me or disagree. And I'm maybe 
I might find other people in the world who have had my similar experience. So yeah. it, it feels good for me to get to talk to you because we've had the same kind of, we're, and if we're having this experience, I think other people are having this experience too. Yeah. Yeah. And you, you mentioned, you know, when, when we were on the phone the other day, you, you've continued to, to see uh, some percol- percolating happening, you know, amongst your, your networks where people are starting seemingly to become mm-hmm. more open to this. And the biggest challenge for me as I was starting to dive into this is I knew, I knew what the implications and ramifications would be because we were with an evangelical uh, non-denominational, but basically evangelical missions organization. And of course, the Southern Baptist Church that we were being supported and, and sent out by, I just knew that this had to be worth it, right? Um, because mm-hmm. I knew that eventually the mission would, would have to cease. We couldn't in good conscience go forward. You know, if you look at just an average evangelical missionary or organization statement of faith, they're going they're going to, of course, take the line of um, infernalism, right? And that's something you mm-hmm. sign off on. That's it, and more than that, that's something that uh, that that comes up in in your actual interactions with the people you're you're trying to reach on the field and as you do that together as teammates. And so for me, um, as I continue to go further into this, and I want to say that, you know, that was the beginning, Jersak's book. Um, I still had a lot of questions about it, right? I think one of the main questions was, as we talked about earlier in our combo here is, well, what about why is there such a high sacrifice that we see right in the, in the martyrs and them and then taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. Um, and God has continued to show me, uh, give me a different perspective and a, and a take on that. I, at the end of Jersak's book, I think he's, I think Nick Ansel I believe is his name is commenting on some of these kind of questions, right? About universalism, Christian universalism. And I believe it was either him or Jersak brought up the Moravian missionaries, right? Yeah. That would sell themselves into slavery. These slave ships, they were ultimate reconciliation. They were restorationists, right? They were Christian universalists and, and they still something, the love of Christ drove them, compelled them to do extreme things, right? To, and, and Andrew Hironich is great, you know, with his illustrations too, as you guys have talked on the podcast, like it, I just love his basic logic and the illustrations he uses, but you know, cause the, the question I often get now that I'm sharing this with folks is that same question. Why does it all matter? Why even have any kind of evangelistic thrust? Right. Mm-hmm. And Hironich is, you know, he said a few different times and like, It'd be akin to, you know, if somebody had cancer or a horrible disease that was wreaking havoc on their body and, and all of a sudden we we had the antidote, right? We had the, and we just decided like, ah, I'm too lazy. I'd rather not, you know, I'd rather not waste my time um, because in the end, like, like they'll be fine, right? Like, I think, I think that kind of highlights the difference in thought as far as, you know, these, it, like, 
what that basically is saying to me, the camp that I'm coming from is that like life right now is not that valuable, right? It's, it's not a big deal. Like what matters is eternity and whether you're in or out. But what I've come to realize more and more through Tony Goldsby Smith, through you and others, like, I think that's just a total missing of the mark. You know, when you, you did your podcast with Tony Goldsby Smith, I can't remember which one you guys have done a few, I think it's like episode 103. You know, I loved the illustration he used, like his pastor at, at their church in Australia said, they're great people. They're, they're trying to do their best, you know, but they're still, I think, missing the mark on some things. But you know, the pastor gave an illustration one day in church, you know, the gospel is like this, right? People are at the beach and they start swimming and all of a sudden, the, you know, one or two of them start drowning and then a boat comes up to rescue them. You know, the captain of the boat is Jesus and and, and the folks on the boat or the church or whatever. And, and, you know, that's that. And, you know, he asked the question, like, what about the beach? Like, what's that all about, right? Kind of this whole reality that's, you know, we start in oftentimes in Genesis three with sin, right? Being mm-hmm. fractured in there and, and kind of getting out of line. And that's what the rest of the hermeneutical lens that we see the rest of the Bible through is like, we got to get out of sin and we got to get saved, right? Versus starting in Genesis one, what was God's purpose from the beginning, right? What has he already accomplished through Christ in which we have this connection with God? And, and this is, the working out of that, right? He communion, loving relationship, uh, volition, you know, vocational purpose in creating and stewarding the earth. And so I think, you know, Hironich has also said in another interview that it's kind of like this too, like we're going to Disney world, right? And all of a sudden we get lost along the way, you know, and it's like, okay, we got to get unlost that's that's what it's all about we got to get unlost and that's kind of where it stops i think it's not so much that getting unlo- unlost is not important but that's not the end goal the end goal is disneyland or disney world right yeah i remember when i went to uh when i went to seminary we the um, and mine was sort of a mainline seminary uh, experience and there was a lot of emphasis on jesus good news about the kingdom of god and that that was uh, the when Jesus talked about the good news, he talked about the the good news that the kingdom of God could be a present reality. Yes, and yeah. that that um, that Jesus had come that not just that we would have life, but that we would have fullness of life, so that the life of God's kingdom we could experience on earth as it is in heaven. So it wasn't about waiting until after you died to experience this ultimate great good reality that you could fully in, enter into it right now and the promise and the hope of that was that that could be a really good that could be a really good message and so to me that's a good message that we can give at any time to anybody and then if somebody says well but what happens if i decide that i don't want to enter into this this way of living that jesus shows the salvation that he offers what if i don't want to receive and enter into all that then you can say well the the Christian community over the centuries has thought that 
well, that way leads ultimately to ruin and destruction. Yeah. Some have thought it leads to eternal conscious torment. Some have thought it leads to an ultimate end of being. Some have thought it leads to restoration. And then I can say, I think that that restoration is ultimately, since God's loving purposes towards creation can't be thwarted, I think the restoration ending to creation is the one that makes the most sense. But why would, even if I believe that the restoration ending is the one that makes the most sense, why would I want to then go down all these dark paths yeah, in this life? Exactly. Why, why do I want to go through this life shooting myself in the foot and through whatever ultimate lives there are doing the same thing until finally I just cause so much pain and misery to myself that I finally see the light? Better to just sort of see the light if you can or if God grants you, however you want to think about that, and then to help others be liberated. And then we can live this good life in God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven right now. And we can share that with other people. That seems like a good liberative uh, gospel centered kind of message. Uh, and so yeah. that's just the way I started thinking about it. And guess what? We get to be along with that. We get to be co-agents of reconciliation and restoration, right? Like everything we do right now actually contributes to God restoring all things like it the way we care for the earth the way that we love our neighbor as Jesus would right all these things actually like I'm not a dispensationalist or any kind of pre or post millennialist and so I I get that a lot of people in that camp will see like well God's just gonna burn it all up anyway even if that's the case like everything you just said David like we like, of course, he wants us to care for our bodies, right? And, and to care for the earth. And, and I'm just seeing that that's such a bigger view of, of, of what this whole cosmological plan is, right? Like, and so I, what, I, what I love about what you just said, too, though, is that what you have helped me see is this kind of concept of, yeah, you can choose to be outside of that. And guess what that is? That's, that's destruction. That's ruin, right? You've you've done a great job of helping me see like Apollumi, right. In the, in the story right. of the lost things, the lost parables, like God, of course, allows us to destroy ourselves, to come to the end of ourselves. But what I love is that in all those stories, as you've pointed out, like, guess what happens? Like restoration does happen. He never stops pursuing his love never ends. And Talbot does a great job of that too. He, he goes on to say that, yeah, God will respect a certain kind of free will, right? And even to the point where someone chooses outer darkness, right? To where the very common grace that has supported them up until that point is completely gone. And how horrifying would that be? You know, and, and, and his estimation is that that would probably be the straw that would break the camel's back as far as like that recognition from that person that, wow, okay, maybe my end is in my beginning. Maybe God is my ultimate good and my ultimate end that I've been going for this whole time, you know? Um, and and that, that's been really helpful. Um, the love piece as well, you know, that how could God expect us to love our enemies and for us to grow in that love per, continually if when we cross the threshold of death, all of a sudden he's now a vindictive uh tyrant that tortures forever 
are, are we supposed to then become like that? I just don't see that anywhere in scripture, you know, nor just logically. Um, so, yeah. Okay. So, so, so you kind of, you, you're, you're coming more confidently to this viewpoint, and this means that you have to uh, split uh, part company with the mission organization that you were in, and and so what was that like, and kind of like where are you now? Yeah, so about April, I think it was April of this year, mid mid to late April, I should say, of this year, I I called our team leader in Central Africa, and I. I just shared with them where we were at on some theological things, especially with eschatology. And I said, I was kind of just trying to throw out a Hail Mary still to see if it could work. I knew that it wouldn't, but he said, yeah, that's a tricky one, man. I'm not familiar with ultimate reconciliation really all that much, but you do know what our statement of faith says. And even on the ground here, you know, he, he told me, he's like, just the other day, I was talking to one of my students, an Arab, a Muslim student, who we were talking about these very things. His mom had passed away last year and he said, teacher, so where is my mom now? What are you telling me? You know, and my team leader said, well, according to the Bible, you know, she's, she's lost for good or, or something to that effect. And as he was sharing that story with me, it, it just, that was kind of, that was kind of confirmation. I just knew that I could no longer, we couldn't do ministry together, even if they had, tried to work something out, you know, so that combined with my wife, you know, she was deconstructing a lot more things than I was. And so it kind of came to a head in late April. And um, we were sitting on the bed that night, one night, and she just said, look, for our mental health, our family's mental health, and to be a good steward of these resources we're being given, we need to pull the plug. And I said, I agree. So that next morning, (laughs) real quick side note, and then I'll get to the end of it. But I went out to, to go meet with the guys. We had a Saturday accountability group. I went down to the garage, went in and, and noticed the garage door had been left open. And I started looking around for my bike because we were only using bikes in France. I said, there's Kaylee's bike. There's the kids' bikes. Where's my bike? Someone had stolen it that night. And I thought, that's interesting. I guess God's trying to help us get rid of our stuff already. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, thanks. Thanks, Lord. And uh, it was funny that th- that bike, I-, I had put French on it. In French, I'd put a decal on the top tube that said, give give thanks unto God. <laughs> 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 so this, this thief is riding around with a bike. And I was like, well, maybe he's the right one to have it. You know, maybe he'll look down at that finally and be like, I need to give my life over to the Lord. <laughs> yes, a lay, a lay miserable kind of moment. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So we made we made plans to come back. Um, this was after a lot of wrestling, a lot of um, just talking with our our friends and family during the whole time, all of this deconstructing over there and, and hoping that we could make it work. Made the decision to come back. Um, and yeah, we it was tough. I mean, it was it was really tough. You know, I went through some depression and just a lot of debriefing and just coming to terms with uh, the decision we'd made, but I just saw a lot of fruit from it. I saw a lot of freedom for my wife, especially uh, freedom to continue to explore, you know, with her faith um, journey and just to no longer be paid to, to be a missionary. That's, that's huge, you know, especially when 
a lot of those core things are not there anymore. And, um, you know, I've, I've continued to just grow, I think, in the UR uh, faith, the ultimate reconciliation faith, continued to read books, um, just love connecting with Jerry Boschman and uh, Hope for All Fellowship. Uh, I'm doing some not-for-profit kind of lay volunteer work uh, with some internationals. Actually happened to meet some guys from the country we were living in on the side of the road the other day, which was beyond coincidental. It's, it's not a, this is not an area where they usually flock to. So that's been really life-giving and rewarding. And yeah, we're just trusting God continue to open doors for good church community, new, new church community, you know, cause we're, we're just at different points with, with our theologies at this point and just trusting that he's got a plan for us, you know, going forward. So yeah, that's kind of where we're at now, um, David. Uh, pretty, pretty big story. <laughs> <laughs> well, the I remember the thing that I thought was, you know, after I went through all these years of ministry and I had all these experiences and I finally uh, came to this understanding of universal reconciliation. And I thought, I kind of thought to myself, uh, it's like I sort of worked and worked and worked. And this was kind of the diamond that I ended up discovering. And so mm. I just wanted to share that um, with the rest of the world, uh, however I, however I could. And I had, yeah. um, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a PhD. I'm not a, a well-known scholar. And um, uh, so I just wrote the book from my perspective. And uh, then I put out, uh, started putting out the podcast um, from my perspective, but it's been, it's been good for me because it has been a way for me to continue to, um, grow spiritually. And I guess, you know, I'm more evangelical, uh, in my ministry than I've ever been before, because I hear, I keep hearing stories of people who are maybe thinking about leaving the Christian faith, or they don't know if they could be Christian. And then they find out about, well, this, universal reconciliation way of being Christian. Well, it opens mm. a possibility then for them to um, uh, have a relationship with Jesus as their Lord and Savior, that mm. it opens up a hope in their life. And now they're beginning to find uh, connections with, with other people. And, um, you know, this is a to me, this is a legitimate and growing spirituality that people from Christian backgrounds are adopting. And, and it's even becoming attractive to people who maybe don't have a particular spiritual background, but they find out about this way of being Christian and they think, wow, that's really very beautiful. Uh, yeah. That's a really very beautiful way of, of thinking about it. And I think that, that, that more people are finding this and then looking for churches where they can be a part of mm. a fellowship that to me, the ground is just going to continue to thaw about yeah. this. And people are going to realize that it's, it's not this um, heretical, unbiblical new age kind of thing, but it's actually part of our ancient heritage as Christians. This is not a new thing. It's an old way of thinking about the Christian, the meaning of the Christian faith, but it's, mm. it's being renewed and sort of um, uh, uh, put out in a new, well, in a, in a more uh, contemporary 
with with more contemporary scholarship and and, and yeah. that type of thing. So it's just a really fascinating, hope giving, life giving. Um, I'm I'm happy for anybody to read. Yeah, read the inescapable love of God by Thomas Talbot, and then tell me you didn't have a better day. I mean, that's <laughs> just it's such a beautiful it's such a beautiful Seriously. book. Yeah. yeah, and there's so much uh, beautiful, hopeful things uh, that are out there. And so I, I just want to encourage you to uh, continue to uh, go on this uh, journey and not think of, you know, not think of yourself as a failed evangelist <laughs> this week, but it, but now, uh, I think, but I think now you have discovered your whole story is, is really profound and powerful and it can really help people uh, that are going through deconstruction. I'd like to talk with you and maybe if we can work it out, maybe your wife, but to talk a little bit more about just that experience of deconstruction, because whether people, if they're going through deconstruction or whether that they land in Christian universalism or not, um, that's a, that's an experience that a lot of people are going through and just need some help processing. Yeah. 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 I, I can't agree with you more. And, um, you know, the fellowship that I'm a part of the zoom calls with Jerry Boschman. I mean, I just, to reaffirm what you just said about you're more evangelistic evangelistic, um, in a lot of ways. And you have, I, I see that with all the folks on the call, just, it seems like the, the fruit of the spirit is, is so strong in them and their desire to bring hope to all, you know, through Christ alone. And yeah, the deconstruction thing, let's get, yeah, let's definitely get back on a call and, um, you know, discuss that. My wife has found a lot of hope and, and I think even a hidden desire to want to, uh, to want to explore more of, uh, ultimate reconciliation, but there's still several other things, you know, she's, she's wrestling with. And I, I think it's amazing. Your ministry can can be there for, especially when evangelicals and others uh, similar backgrounds can, you know, when they when they start asking those questions and saying, "I just don't think it makes sense anymore," you know, they can at least from eschatology standpoint and God's God's purposes, they can come to you and others mm-hmm. that are doing similar things, you know, and really find some amazing amazing encouragement, resources, and and thought provoking, yeah, ideas. Yeah, that's one of the things is, uh, you know, I had, I, I have my experience in, in my in my background, but my experience in my background is not going to be very familiar uh, to a lot of people who are like your background. I mean, I didn't go through the uh, church, my church, Christian Church Disciples of Christ is in sort of the mainline Protestant world. So I didn't have, I didn't have those experiences that you, you have had. So I can only sort of speak to the outside, from the outside to those types of things. But yeah. I think somebody like you, you know, you can communicate, you can you can talk to people uh, that have grown up within evangelicalism, even have been on the mission field, have had all these experiences. So that's why I'm excited to have you uh, come on the podcast and for uh, people to get to know a little bit about you and and your experience. And I really appreciate you being willing, you know, to share this. Uh, this story that's, that's painful. I mean, it's, it's hopeful, but it's, it's, you know, there's a, there's a lot of emotion and a lot of dark nights that, that, that you went through, you and your wife went through to, to get to this point. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. We, 
so appreciate that, David, just the opportunity to, to come on and to share. And, you know, it, God is, God, God is a God of hope, you know, infinitely and ever just wider than we ever could think. Right. And so that's what gives us, uh, gives me encouragement to keep moving forward and just to think back on all, all the things that he put in our way to, to get us to see that. Right. And to, and to embrace something that we truly feel, uh, is true and is real. So, yeah. Okay. Well, that seems like a good place to end our conversation. So thank you so much, Nick, for spending this time with us on the podcast today and look forward to the next time that we get to visit. Absolutely. Thanks, David. Keep up the the amazing work. Okay. Thanks. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David, or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.